0: Well, let's imagine ourselves right now. It's, it's Good Friday, and we're standing there, and Jesus is on the cross. It's now about noon. Maybe you've been following him for a while, this whole last 12 hours or so, and imagine what you have seen. You've seen Jesus be betrayed. You have witnessed the false trial. You've seen Jesus be beaten. And now he's gone out to where he's to be crucified, and you've uh, seen the bloody and beaten carpenter from Nazareth nailed to a cross, as we saw last week, mocked by soldiers, mocked by the religious leaders, and mocked by the crowds. Uh, Later on, the apostles, particularly the Apostle Paul, who was not one of the original apostles, will write letters unpacking the meaning of the cross. For centuries, people have wrote books about really what went on that day on the cross. And yet Matthew seems to teach us by just telling us what was seen that day and what was heard that day. The title of our message is The Cross, The Day Death Died, as we take a closer look at some of the things that were going on when Jesus died on the cross. Now, most people tend to see the cross as a sad and somber moment. And I'm sure it was for the apostles at first, but the Bible writers actually see it as a time of great victory. Now, clearly, the apostles, uh, from, because of the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that increased their confidence in Jesus, that increased their love for Jesus, that increased their trust in Jesus. But at this moment, things are a little different. Once again, it's about noon. And it's been very busy. People have been mocking. It's the middle of the day. And all of a sudden, things get dark. I mean, really dark. Blackness. Look at verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, that would be noon in the way they kept time, until the ninth hour, that would be 3 p.m., there was darkness over the land. Now, some people we'll explain this away and say oh it was a solar eclipse well that Passover was it's Passover season we had said this before and during the Passover that occurred during a full moon solar eclipses don't happen during full moons and, and eclipses uh, they they only you know when you see when you're like hurry up hurry up hurry up they last for just a couple minutes this one is 3 hours long Now, one of the things I think people do is when they read the Bible is they spend too much time trying to figure out how God does what he does. And a lot of times we miss the point. So Jesus walks on the water and we're like, how does he do that? No, that's not what we say. We realize that he's the all powerful God, that he created the weather and the water and he can walk on top of it. We try to figure out how does Jesus heal people? He just speaks and, and people are healed. How does Jesus feed so many people? You know, a kid comes along with a happy meal and 5,000 people get fed. How does he do that? He can just do it. Or he goes and he raises the dead. He just tells dead people, come on, you arise. And they just do. Matthew wants us to see, as he often has throughout his gospel, that this was a supernatural event. And why is it dark? Well, there's a number of reasons. But one reason is God wants people to take notice that this is no ordinary crucifixion. Crucifixion was part of first century life. The Romans did it a lot. If you you were against Caesar, against the government, insurrectionists, a rebel, they would crucify you. And so people knew about it quite a bit. About 750 years before Jesus, the Old Testament prophet Amos wrote these words, Amos 8, 9. And it shall come to pass that in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. Now, in the scriptures, darkness is often associated with judgment. And so here we see God's judgment on sin is seen on the cross. And so everything gets dark. And who is in the midst of all that darkness? The light of the world. He He himself is engulfed in the darkness. So who's the judgment on? Well, it seems to me the judgment's on the land. It says it was dark on the land. Its judgment is on the people as well as Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, here's a problem we have in the United States. Most people don't like to admit they're sinners. Are there any sinners here? Only a few. Some of you still think you're not. Let us talk to the people who live with you. See, people don't think that they're sinners, yet the word of God teaches otherwise, and to fail to see that we are all sinners in God's sight, remember the standard is not the evil people of the world, the standard is God himself, to say that we are not sinners is to call God a liar, and the scriptures would say is to live in spiritual darkness. Often the word of God, light represents God. And the salvation of God brings light to those who live in the darkness. At the cross, we're reminded in many ways of the plagues of Egypt. If you know those stories from the life of Moses, particularly we're reminded of the ninth plague. The ninth plague, what happened was darkness came all over the land. And what was the tenth plague? That if you did not have faith, the firstborn son of your family would die. And so here we have a reenactment of that. The darkness comes and God's beloved son, the firstborn over all creation that the scripture tells us, is going to die. Now, in Moses' time, they died, why? Because they lacked faith. Jesus was full of faith. So something very different is going on here. Jesus loved God. And as we can see, much more than the physical pain, as we will see much more than the physical pain, God's judgment burned in the heart of Jesus. It was a judgment of feeling isolated. It was a judgment of feeling abandoned by God as the darkness of hell came to Jesus and met him on the cross. So I want to read verse 46 twice because I'm going to interrupt it as we go through it slowly. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama saptani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it says about the ninth hour, that would be 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Now, the, the translators are being very, very kind to Jesus, perhaps too kind. The word is not really cried out. The word is he screamed or he shrieked with a loud voice. And he says, now let's stop there for a second. In the Gospels, there are seven sayings of Jesus from the the cross. Matthew and Mark only record this one. So it must be important. This is the only one they record. You have to read Luke, and and John we will go through a couple of them in a little bit, but you you, you have to go to them to get the other ones. So they say, it looks in your Bible, it looks like it says Eli. Most people would pronounce it Eloi, but let's say Eli. It kind of looks like Elijah, doesn't it? Kind of similar type sounding word. Eloi, Eloi, lama saktani. That is, some of you have heard say, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, for translators, there's no real difficulty in translating these words, but understanding exactly what they mean is a different story. Because to understand what these words mean, we have to enter into the Godhead. We have to enter into eternity, something that we can't do. And so we only have to just sort of search for some clues and leave a lot to to just not understanding it. And so, there's a lot of theories. What is actually going on here? And I read all of these theories. It takes a long time. And at the end, I go, every one of them's convincing. Because if you, if you talk about people's opinions, they're not really they're not like, well, that's not, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right. That's not right. But when you talk about well studied Bible scholars who really know their stuff, they can give you all of these opinions. And you read one and you go, yeah, that's right. You read the next one. Yeah, no, that's one's right. You, you can just go, they're all right. So what I try to do is, after doing all that, I try to just bring it down to a simple point. The simple point I come away with this is that this is better to accept this as business between the father and the son. It's a similar event to this that happens in the book of Genesis. God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice to me. Abraham and his wife had been waiting for a child for a long time, and Isaac was, was, was... you know, grown up by then, or at least a teenager or a young adult by then. And he says, I want you to take them up to the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice them. It's just a kind of a test of faith. So Abraham was a rich guy, and they take, he's got servants. They take the servants with him. They come to the foot of the mountain. And what does Abraham say to them? You guys wait here. This is father and son business. Now Isaac had said, Dad, where's the, where's the sacrifice? We're not bringing a sacrifice with us. And Abraham said to his son, God himself will provide the sacrifice. And so they go up the hill, and God saves Isaac and provides the animal for the sacrifice. But this time is different. This is not like what happened with Abraham. This is, this is father and son business. This time God himself, his son, is the sacrifice. And that is what's going on here. Up until now, Jesus has been remarkably calm. Remember all that? People are spitting at him. They're yelling at him. And he is cool as a cucumber. But now he shrieks. He screams at the top of his lungs. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice he didn't scream about the pain. When they put nails through his hands and his feet, he doesn't scream about that. He doesn't scream about where are my friends when I need them. He doesn't scream about that. He screams about God. Do you know even some of the biggest skeptics of the Bible who don't believe that what stuff in the Bible is true believe this to be true? They think to themselves, listen, if you're trying to start a religion and you want to make the leader look strong and worth following, you'd never put this in. Because he doesn't look strong here. And so even a lot of skeptics would, would, would believe it. He looks too weak. But this is part of what we call Jesus putting away sin. Yet for all of us, our ability to see how God views sin is severely compromised. Habakkuk one thirteen says this, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. So here in this moment, it seems that this God who cannot look upon wickedness, we'll talk about how sin was placed on Jesus in a minute. He looks away from Jesus. If you will, he turns his face from Jesus. So you want to know, how does God see sin? Is it trivial? Look at the cross. That tells you what God thinks of it. How does God respond to sin? You want to know? Look at the cross. Interesting, at the Last Supper, uh, Jesus knew that his God, the apostles were all going to desert him. and He's saying all this stuff. They're like, that's never going to be us. And, and it all turned out to be true, of course. Jesus said this, John sixteen thirty two Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has come now that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. But all of a sudden, and we don't really exactly understand how this is all happening, right now, in this moment, Jesus, who said, the Father is with me, senses that the Father's actually not with him. And he's confused, if you will. He's becoming undone, unraveled. This is, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, if this cup can pass for me, this is the cup. This is it. This we say, if there's another way, I'll do it. There's another way. And heaven didn't answer. And now God is silent. You know, throughout his ministry, Jesus often taught people about his constant, unique, and close relationship with his heavenly father. As a matter of fact, it got him into a lot of trouble. Because he claimed a closeness to God that other people would never, they almost considered to be Disrespectful. But now something is really wrong here. Now, the New Testament goes on to teach us later on when the Bible writers unpack the cross that that Jesus was made sin. What, What does that mean? He was treated as if he was a sinner. He did not become a sinner. There are some people who teach that. That's heresy. He did not become a sinner on the cross. How could he be the perfect sacrifice for sins if he was a sinner? So he did not become a sinner. But he was made sin and a curse for our sins. In other words, here's what's happening. All of our sins are being placed upon Jesus. And he is receiving the full force of punishment for sins in that moment. In the midst of it all, just when he needed his father the most, his communion with his father His constant intimate connection with his father is somehow compromised. It is somehow broken. Jesus knows the details. We don't. We don't know what that was actually like. Perhaps we might say, in his humanity, Jesus experienced the suffering of separation from God. Which is really the definition of hell none of us here, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad you're here. Please say hi on the way. I'd love to meet you. We don't know how much anybody has God really connected to them. These are things that are unseen. But to have God totally separated from you, that is what hell is. Now, for people who hate God, that sounds like a great day. But for Jesus, that is terror upon terror think about it god becomes a man and the person of jesus christ lives a perfect life and now the sins of the world are placed upon him and he is separated from the one that he loves so you and i can have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life with god let's go back track backtrack a little to something we looked at last week verse 43 says, the, 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 they're mocking him, and they said this, they said, he trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Now, some people will say at this point in time, when Jesus utters that, he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he's no longer trusting God. I could not disagree more. Notice, despite the circumstances, Jesus did not abandon his trust. Remember, we said last week he could have stayed on the cross, but he doesn't get down. He says, my God, my God. Now, notice he doesn't say, my father, my father. Not really sure why. He says, my God, my God. And he asks, why? It's interesting that that terminology is actually from my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? From Psalm 22. People wonder is, is he just calling out to God? Do you ever call out to God with a Bible verse? Or does he know that he's fulfilling Psalm 22? And so there he is. He's, he's on the cross. He senses that he is abandoned from God. Have you ever sensed that? No, I mean really sense that. I have. I have. Over 30 years ago. That's how I became a Christian. It was, it was like the weight of my own sin came crashing down on me and it was like God just took his hand just off for a second. I can't even talk about it Still. It was so horrifying, just for a second. And all I could get out of my mouth was, I'm so sorry. That's all I could get out. And I was never the same after that. That's why I would love to see the church return to the preaching of of sin and repentance and faith towards Jesus Christ and stop with all this how-to-feel-good stuff. Because I fear that our churches are full of people who are really not converts. I think in this passage here, when he says, he asks why, we we have to understand for Jesus, this is very real. But it's also very new. He'd never been here before. And I think this is where we really see the humanity of the God-man As Jesus cries out to God in the deepest depth of his need. I know sometimes people in the deepest depth of their need, they don't want to cry out to God, or they think it's because they created the situation that God doesn't want to hear from you. Let this be a reminder to you. You say, well, Jesus never sinned. He's got the sin of the whole world on him. And he cries out to his heavenly father. But that thought in no way compromises the deity. What do I mean by that? The divine nature of Jesus. Make no mistake about it. That was God on that cross. And now the sins of the world are upon God himself. I mean, think about it. The sins of the world against God are now on God. So in this moment, when they are forsaken, when Jesus is forsaken, did God cease to be God? No. Did Jesus cease to be God? No. Was the Trinity broken? No. But Jesus was somehow abandoned by his heavenly father, by his God. Now, illustrations always break down at some point. But I remember hearing one a long, long time ago. I was trying to think back how long ago it was, maybe even 25 years ago. But it was an illustration that really struck with me in remembering Something gave me a picture, if you will, of what was going on here. Let's imagine for a second, and some of you would say, I don't have to imagine I am. You're a parent. And you have a child that you love very, very much. But your child is sick. And you take your child to the, to the doctor and the, and the doctor says, this can be fixed. But it's going to require a long time very painful operation. Well, what do you do? You, you love your child and you know it's going to hurt, but you want to save your child. And so you do take your child for this operation. So you take them to the hospital. And there you are and you're waiting and you're waiting. And all of a sudden they come to take your child to the operating room. And as they're going away, They're like, mommy, daddy, come with me. Come with me, please, please, please. But you have to let that little one go. You have to let them go into that operating room. So there you are in the waiting room waiting for them. Wishing you could be there, but you can't be. And they are in another room being operated on. Let me ask you this, parent. Do they ever at any moment cease becoming your child? No. No. As a matter of fact, maybe in that moment, your love and appreciation for them is at a place it's never really been before. And sometimes we forget the pain of the Father having to turn from the Son in order that sins could be forgiven. Here we have the great theology of the cross contained in the word forsaken. I mean, just think about it. Judaism had forsaken Jesus. The, the non-Jews, the Gentiles, represented by the, by, the, by the Roman Empire, the Roman soldiers, has forsaken Jesus. His apostles have forsaken him. We have forsaken him. Now his heavenly father has forsaken him too. And yet Jesus obeys. And yet Jesus stays on the cross. Maybe instead of an explanation, God wants us just to stand there in the darkness and get close and just stand in awe as God puts sin and death on trial in the body of Jesus Christ. Maybe Jesus' words are supposed to give us a taste of hell. Maybe we're supposed to think about what it would be like to have God forsake us You say, well, that's scary. Maybe it's supposed to be. Maybe it will be a motivation for someone in this room to to turn from themselves, to turn back to God and put their trust in Jesus. Why? So you would never have to say those words. So those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, would never come over your lips. In Psalm 27, verse 10, King David says, what is a very hard verse for many people, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Perhaps followers of Jesus are to see that Jesus was abandoned and stayed faithful so we too can stay faithful when we feel abandoned. Friend, let me ask you, Have you ever felt alone? I mean, really alone. That is part of the human experience. Have you ever felt forsaken? Like you didn't have a friend in the world. Jesus not only knows that, but if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus shares that with you. May that be a comfort to you when you are lonely. When you are sick, when you are anxious, you are not alone, Christian. Jesus was forsaken in your place. Verse 47, some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Now, perhaps it was Jesus's accent. Remember, we said that Jesus kind of came from the sticks and you know had a different accent than the people in Jerusalem or maybe from all the beatings his speech was slurred at this point and people mistook mistook what he said or maybe they're just mocking him again why why would they think that well it's similar wording but also the second kings chapter 2 elijah did not die he was taken up to heaven by god in a whirlwind and, and maybe they thought jesus wanted elijah to come for him and take him in the same way Verse 48, immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. We might put in our thing, don't give him a drink. Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. But there's the thing, Elijah can't save him. As a matter of fact, Elijah, if you remember from the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah had already come. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. What does he do? He yields up, he gives up his life. Jesus was a man on a mission. He came from heaven to seek and save that which was lost, and that would be every human being. He said he came to give his life a ransom for many. He would make himself the payment for our sins. And notice once again, they mock and Jesus ignores. He pays them no mind. It says Jesus cried out again. He is still in control of the situation. It says he cried out and he yielded up his spirit. That leads us to the last two things he says on the cross. The second to last thing he says uh, as he's in control of the situation it could be the word that he's talking about here, the words of John 1930. It is finished. That literally means it is paid in full. Paid in full. I know some of you live with that burden of trying to pay God back. It is a terrible burden. It will will take the life right out of you. You don't have to pay God back. When he says it is finished, it means there are no more sacrifice for sins needed. That means you, you can stop trying to earn your way to heaven. Because you are saved by grace and you grab it through faith. That means instead of trying to get God to love you, if you will only turn to God and put your trust in Jesus, you can know that God does love you. And he does accept you. But also, it is finished is a cry of triumph and victory. And on Easter, Jesus will rise from the dead. Why? Because death has died. And death died on that cross. That has often caused me to wonder. And I know I'm being, you know, difficult here. But it's often caused me to wonder, why are our communion services so often like we lost? Why is it like Jesus lost? He didn't lose, he won. I told the last service, none of them said amen. I said, I got to find a different kind of church. Now you kept me here for another while longer. Why do we treat communion like it's a funeral? He's alive. Is that a funeral? He lives. Matthew tells us here in verse 50 that he yielded up his spirit. A picture here of the voluntary action of Jesus giving up his life. Luke records the last words, Luke 23, 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father. Now it's not God anymore. Now it's Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. All of a sudden now, once he says it is finished, the consciousness of his Father's presence is still with him. He is still trusting his Father. He is still in control of the situation And he himself decides it's time to die. Remember, we said last week, Jesus said, no one takes my life. I lay it down. And here he gives his life willingly. Verse 51, I want to read this one twice. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two uh, from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Let's go slowly. Then behold. Remember, this is language that Matthew uses a lot. Behold, look. Look. Pay attention. It's now 3 p.m. It's the time of the sacrifices in the temple. The veil of the temple, some of your verses say, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. They had these large curtains in there, particularly two large curtains that were in there. They were super high, super thick, almost like a movable wall from top to bottom. So who did it? God tore tore it. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split. So in God's mind, sin and death are now defeated. So it's time for a little bit of divine fireworks. God's going to start rocking the house. So we know that an earth-shattering event has just happened. And the first thing that happens is this thick veil, this curtain in the temple is torn in two. A Bible scholar's debate, is this the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies? That was the place that the high priest went into once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to make a sacrifice. The book of Hebrews seems to indicate that is yes. Others think it was another curtain that kept people out. Only certain people are allowed in past this one curtain. But now things have changed. The curtain is open. The only thing that will keep you out from the presence of God is unbelief. That is the only thing that will keep you out. We should also notice that here we see a judgment upon the temple, and a new age of salvation history has dawned. Maybe we could think of it this way, that the temple system is over, and the temple' savior is now available to all. That language of all I love it in the Bible. it's not, it's not just exclusive group of people. It is open, it is available to all. Jesus had been cast out of the corrupt temple. He had been cast out of the sight of a holy God so you and I could come in by faith. The way, friend, to God has been opened for you. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16 says this, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now pay attention to verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace uh, to help in time of need. Quite simply, through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, all who turn to God and put their trust in Jesus have open access to God. I've heard old sermons where the preachers have used this analogy. And I've seen the picture of, of when JFK was president. And you'd see his kids running into the Oval Office and under the desk playing and stuff like that. You know what happened if you or I did that? We'd be shot. <laughs> but they had open access to the Father. And that is the same open access that we all have to God now. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So the sacrificial system is now dead. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the new temple, the new meeting place between God and man, and heaven is open to all who take refuge in Jesus, Verse 52 and 53 are two of the most challenging verses in the Gospel of Matthew, and they're only found in Matthew. And, and the graves, uh, some verses say tombs, were opened, and many bodies, interesting, not bones, of the saints who had fallen asleep, died, were raised. Now, there's a lot of different theories you can read on that. It really has to do with where you punctuate the, the sentence. We won't go into that. And coming out of the graves, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Appears to be some short time span. So, again, there's a lot of theories on this. Very convincing, each one of them. Well, not each one of them, but most of them are very convincing. So I'd rather look for the point. And I think the point is that the cross of Christ is responsible for the resurrection of followers of Jesus. Perhaps we're too quick to separate the cross and the resurrection. We're too quick to separate the crucified Savior and the risen Savior. They are both one and the same. And just as Jesus, as just as the torn curtain opens the way to God for all people, the raising of the saints, and in the Bible the saints are just those who put their trust in Jesus, shows us that death has been defeated. Jesus' life, his death, and resurrection is strong enough to cancel your sins and to open the way to God. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is also strong enough to cancel your death and to open your grave. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, that would be heaven, in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we miss that little word, in, that is so important. That has to do with finding your refuge in Christ Jesus. So you find refuge from what? From the penalty for your sins, from death, from hell, from the wrath of God against sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 and 21. uh, But now Christ is seen from the dead, risen from the dead, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man, talking about Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. So it talks about the first fruits. Just think of it in terms of the Bible. The Bible talks about, it says that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It talked about the cross as a tree, came from a tree. And the New Testament brings that up too, that it is a tree. And Jesus Christ is, is, it's not a dead tree, it's the first fruit. He is the first fruit. That would grow on that tree. So just picture a dead tree, and all of a sudden there's fruit. And next thing you know, the the, the, the tree is full. One of the old Bible commentators, I forget which one, said this that the cross of Christ was not a death tree, but it was a fruit tree. (laughs) A tree that gave resurrection life to all who put their trust in Jesus. On the day when God lost his Son. And Jesus lost his father. So many good things happened and will continue to happen for all who believe. Because Jesus endured the darkness, we can step into the light. Because Jesus was forsaken by God, we who have trusted in Jesus will never be forsaken by God. Because Jesus was separated from the love of God, the word of the Lord tells us nothing can separate us from the love of God. Who is us? All who believe. Because God sees our sin on Jesus, God can look at us and he sees the holiness and righteousness of Jesus, which he gives to us by faith. As Jesus' body was torn by the scourging, so the veil was torn. That veil that kept sinful men and women separated from God are now no longer separated. Not only are we now no longer separated, now we have open access to the very throne room of God himself. Because Elijah did not come to save, Jesus stayed on the cross so he could save you, he could save me from the penalty of our sin because he stood there in our place. Because Jesus has the power to raise the dead, we can be guaranteed he will do the same for all who put their trust in him. Friend, Jesus Christ has done it all. It is finished. He has done it all to get you to heaven. He has done it all to reconcile you to God. All that's left for you is to respond to what he has done. To respond to the grace of God with faith and trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can enter, if you trust Jesus, you can enter into God's presence with confidence because of the cross, because of the death of death. Because that day on that cross was the day that death died. Let's pray.